0: Today's podcast is on intraabdominal infections. We have five learning objectives. One, to contrast the pathophysiology of cholecystitis, cholangitis, diverticulitis, acute appendicitis, pancreatitis, and liver abscess. Two to list the usual pathogens implicated in community onset intraabdominal infections. Three to discuss selection of empiric therapy for community onset intraabdominal infections. Four to recognize the importance of source control in management of intraabdominal infections. And five, To apply the above knowledge to a patient presenting with suspected intra-abdominal infection. So from the learning objectives,
1: we can already tell that intra-abdominal infections are a mixed bag. There is different underlying physiology to each, but regardless of the physiology of their original infection, for the most part the causative pathogens are similar.
0: Which if we think back to our Bugs and Drugs podcast makes sense. We know the usual flora of the lower gut contains gram-negative pathogens and anaerobes predominantly. So compromised structures or host defenses in this region leading to a pathogenic infection, is likely to be with gram-negatives and anaerobes that are already around and do well in these conditions. To keep things manageable today, we will
1: focus on the six infections we outlined that onset in the community. So infections that started in the community but are of sufficient severity to require presentation to the hospital. We won't discuss nosocomial intra-abdominal infections. The underlying pathophysiology is the same, regardless of whether it's community or hospital onset. But if we think back to our Bugs and Drugs podcast— Patients who are hospitalized have a shift in their flora to more resistant gram-negative pathogens. The treatment of hospital-onset intra-abdominal infections is more aggressive and relies on broader spectrum agents, because the gram-negatives colonizing a patient who have been hospitalized for an appreciable period are different than our community gram-negatives. Remember our acronym for our
0: community gram-negatives, our PEC organisms, Proteus, E. coli, and Klebsiella. So spoiler alert, ceftriaxone and metronidazole will be MVPs in today's podcast. You'll also notice that treatment of many of these conditions relies not just on antimicrobial therapy, but frequently on drainage or surgical management of the underlying infection, also known as source control. So to
1: help us mentally organize the common community onset intraabdominal infections that we see in hospital, we can categorize infections by region of the GI tract affected, since the affected region of the GI affects microbial coverage. But like we already said, for the most part, any intraabdominal infection distal to the stomach necessitates fairly similar antimicrobial coverage. We will also touch on what the source control procedure is for each of these infections.
0: Okay, so our different intraabdominal infections by region, all of which we're going to discuss today. We have infections of the biliary tract, so cholecystitis, which is infection of the gallbladder, often from obstruction of the cystic duct, and ascending cholangitis, infection of the biliary tree, usually secondary to obstruction of the common bile duct, with ascension of the bacteria from the gut into the liver. Then we have infections that involve the actual lumen of the bowel more directly like diverticulitis, which can be perforated or unperforated, and acute appendicitis, which can again be perforated or unperforated.
1: And then we have two additional intra-abdominal infections we're going to touch on today that are less common than the above, but still come up. We can have liver abscesses, which have multiple possible causes, including some parasitic causes, and also pancreatitis, which is unique because it is actually more commonly not an infectious process, but rather an inflammatory one. We're going to talk about pancreatitis because it's particularly challenging. Even when it is a sterile process, it is frequently accompanied by a robust systemic inflammatory response and fevers. If we think back to our AMS General Principles podcast, it is a classic inflammatory non-infectious mimicker where patients can deteriorate
0: rapidly. So let's quickly review the pathophysiology of these different infections. With the biliary tract, we first have cholecystitis. Acute cholecystitis
1: is most commonly secondary to calculi obstructing the cystic duct, which is known as cholelithiasis, preventing bile outflow. This leads to increased pressure in the gallbladder and inflammation, producing right upper quadrant pain, nausea, and vomiting. The increased local inflammation and ensuing effects compromises the host structural defenses against infection, which can lead to microbial overgrowth in the gallbladder and infection. If the pressure sustains and leads to vascular compromise, we can get gangrenous cholecystitis. Symptoms include fever, nausea, vomiting, and sustained right upper quadrant pain, along with systemic inflammatory features, such as elevated white blood cells, CRP, and fever. Though in milder illness, there may not be systemic features. Murphy's sign is a characteristic feature. Pain with deep pressure in the right upper quadrant when conducting diagnostic ultrasound, but has a sensitivity of only around 62%, though high specificity at 97%. So, if present, it is helpful to point to cholecystitis, but if absent, does not rule it out. Ultrasound is imaging modality of choice for suspected acute cholecystitis and obstructing stones because it is rapidly available and has sensitivity and specificity, both above 80%. Along with antimicrobial therapy, early laparoscopic cholecystectomy is recommended in most patients to remove the source of infection and prevent recurrent gallstones. To treat acute cholecystitis, early laparoscopic cholecystectomy is recommended, along with antibiotics in most patients, to remove the source of infection and prevent recurrent gallstones.
0: Okay, so our next biliary infection, we have ascending cholangitis. Like cholecystitis, ascending cholangitis is also caused by obstruction, but this time, the location of the obstruction is different. In cholecystitis, we have gallstones obstructing the cystic duct, whereas in cholangitis, we have gallstones or other causes like malignancy obstructing the common bile duct. Gallstones in the common bile duct is known as choletocholethiasis. To understand the difference between cholethiasis and choletocholethiasis, cholecystitis and cholangitis, I would recommend going online and looking at a picture of the gallbladder, cystic duct, liver, common bile duct, pancreas, and duodenum, to get a better sense of the anatomy. In any case, in cholangitis we have obstruction of the common bile duct, which blocks bile outflow to the duodenum. This causes increased pressure and localized inflammation in the biliary tree, with dysfunction of local defenses that usually prevent bacterial ascension. This creates an environment suitable for bacterial superinfection and ascension of gram-negatives from the GI lumen. Cholangiovenous reflux allows pathogen translocation into the hepatic veins and lymphatics which is one of the reasons these patients are frequently bacteremic and have significant systemic response. Patients may present with the classic Charcot's triad of jaundice, fever, and right upper quadrant pain. They also generally have leukocytosis. Ultrasound is again the initial imaging modality of choice to identify common bile duct dilatation secondary to the obstruction because of availability and safety, but it has far lesser sensitivity and specificity for cholelithiasis than cholelithiasis. MRCP and endoscopic ultrasound fare better here. ERCP, endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography, can be used to decompress the biliary tract and allow passage of the obstructing stone into the duodenum. It can also allow placement of stents, when they're medically indicated. So now moving into infections that involve the GI lumen more directly, diverticulitis and acute appendicitis.
1: Diverticulitis is a complication of diverticulosis, outpouchings of the colon of unclear cause, but suspected to be related to various factors including ethnicity, diet, sex, medications that reduce GI motility, and more. Patients generally present with left lower abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and if complicated, may have systemic features of fever, leukocytosis, and other elevated inflammatory markers. CT scan is the imaging modality of choice to identify inflammation of the bowel and identify presence of perforation and associated abscess.
0: For uncomplicated diverticulitis, that is, no perforation and abscess, antibiotics do not alter outcomes and are not recommended. Bowel rest alone is recommended. For small abscesses, those less than 4 centimeters, antibiotics are the mainstay of treatment along with bowel rest. For larger abscesses, percutaneous or surgical drainage may be needed. If the patient is peritonitic or unstable, urgent colectomy with N-colostomy, also known as Hartman's procedure, may be needed.
1: And now for appendicitis. So, the only time we ever think about the appendix in modern times is in the setting of appendicitis, since it's an organ that otherwise serves no known function. The cause of acute appendicitis is unknown, although some data suggest obstruction from fecoliths or lymphoid hyperplasia, with resultant engorgement and perforation, may be causative. The classic presentation of acute appendicitis is central lower abdominal pain, migrating to the right lower quadrant and increasing in severity. Patients with perforation generally have systemic features of infection, like fever, leukocytosis and elevated inflammatory markers. CT abdopelvis is the imaging modality of choice to identify inflammation, perforation and abscess. Surgical source control is necessary in the case of perforation. Even for unperforated appendicitis, laparoscopic appendectomy reduces likelihood of recurrence at the one-year mark compared to patients treated with antibiotics alone, although the data on this is evolving. So surgical source control is a mainstay here. Now on to our two less frequent infections
0: starting with liver abscess. So liver abscess is a bit unique compared to other intra-abdominal infections. Liver abscesses have multiple causes. They can form secondary to biliary disease, secondary to portal seeding from alternate GI pathologies, secondary to bacteremia seeding the liver via the hepatic artery, or secondary to parasites like entamoeba or echinococcus. The most common mechanism of infection in the developed world is translocation through vasculature or lymphatics from the biliary tree or GI tract, and there is an association with GI malignancy in the literature. Unlike the other intraabdominal infections, gram-positive pathogens may also play a bigger role in liver abscess by seeding through the hepatic artery. As we will learn in our bacteremia podcasts, gram-positive pathogens have virulence factors that facilitate seeding from central sources or other high inoculum bacteremias. Clinical features of liver abscess include right upper quadrant pain, fever, malaise, and weakness. Anorexia, weight loss, and constitutional symptoms may be present, as typically liver abscesses take time to develop. They tend to onset less acutely than other intraabdominal infections. Transaminases may or may not be elevated. If there's significant disruption to bile canaliculi, jaundice may also develop, but this is uncommon. As far as microbial causes go, like other intraabdominal infections, local pathogens including gram-negatives like E. coli and Klebsiella still predominate, but strep anginosis and other gram-positives may be present in liver abscess. We won't make mention of hypermucoviscous Klebsiella pneumonia here, except to say that it is a relevant cause of pyogenic liver abscess in patients who are from Asia especially. It is a unique pathogen because despite being a gram-negative, Hypermucal viscous klebsiella pneumoniae seeds readily and causes secondary abscesses and foci of infection.
1: And finally, let's talk about pancreatitis, and this is a challenging one. Pancreatitis deserves some mention, though this is more often an inflammatory condition and not infectious. There are multiple possible causes of acute pancreatitis. The two most common in North America are obstruction of biliary outflow, causing increased intraductal pressure and altered local cellular function in the pancreas, and alcohol use. Hypertriglyceridemia is also implicated, though much less prevalent. Ultimately, premature activation of trypsin in pancreatic alpha cells causes local inflammation and eventually leads to systemic inflammatory response. This produces the observed abdominal pain, that is often severe, as well as nausea and vomiting. To make the diagnosis, lipase should be elevated to three times the upper limit of normal, and amylase may be elevated as well. Note though that there are other causes of elevated lipase other than pancreatitis. Depending on the severity of the pancreatitis, the patient may also have systemic inflammatory features, including fever, leukocytosis, and elevated CRP.
0: And this systemic inflammatory response is often present even with sterile pancreatitis. Pancreatitis that is not associated with necrosis is assumed to be sterile, so there's no infection to treat. And numerous studies and systematic reviews have confirmed that there's no role for antimicrobial prophylaxis in the setting of acute pancreatitis. So if a patient doesn't have necrosis, it's easy. We don't treat but these patients may still have pronounced inflammatory response. The
1: real challenge is when a patient does have pancreatic necrosis because it can be difficult to distinguish infected necrosis from non-infected necrosis. It is estimated that even with necrosis, 70% of cases are not infected. These patients are frequently extremely unwell, though, and mount a pronounced inflammatory response. Not surprising, since their pancreatic enzymes have literally digested their own cells. This can render identification of infection difficult, and patients are certainly at risk for infection. But again, there's no rule for prophylaxis.
0: So the way we can determine infectious involvement in necrotic pancreatitis is generally timing and the advent of new symptoms. When suspected infection does develop, generally it takes some time, and most commonly onsets 14 days post-necrosis. Usually, new infection is accompanied by a worsening in systemic inflammatory symptoms, and increased grade and frequency of fevers. In patients with suspected infection, Drainage is recommended for source control to help control the inflammatory response, and can also be helpful for obtaining cultures. Like other intra-abdominal infections, the usual implicated organisms in infected necrosis are gram-negative pathogens with or without anaerobes, secondary to translocation from the GI, as a result of inflammation disrupting normal host defenses. While historically carbapenems were recommended for treatment because of a reported increased penetration into pancreatic tissue, recent guidelines have suggested that third-generation cephalosporins like ceftriaxone with metronidazole will adequately penetrate pancreatic tissue. This combination will provide good coverage of the usual bacterial pathogens implicated. If a patient is critically ill with suspected infected necrotic pancreatitis, broader spectrum therapy is reasonable. Okay, so we talked about six different pathologies:
1: cholecystitis, cholangitis, appendicitis, diverticulitis, liver abscess, and acute pancreatitis. But you've probably noticed some overwhelmingly repetitive themes here despite the differing pathophysiology and presentation of the many intraabdominal infections.
0: Right. Pretty much the four big themes are, one, source control is a mainstay of treatment. Two, ceftriaxone and metronidazole is adequate therapy to cover gram-negative and anaerobic bacteria implicated in most community-onset intra-abdominal infections, when antibiotics are required at all. Because remember, for unperforated diverticulitis, there's no benefit to antibiotics. Same for sterile pancreatitis. Three, for patients we treat with ceftriaxone and metronidazole, when we start to see reduced magnitude and frequency of fevers and our patient has undergone adequate source control we can switch to oral antibiotics, usually a moxclav. And four, if the patient undergoes complete source control early and there's no residual abscess, we can often stop antibiotics entirely after a total duration of four to seven days. However, if there's inadequate source control, like a residual abscess, we generally continue antibiotics until clinical and radiographic resolution.
1: Okay, so now our end of podcast case. Like always, the clinical decision-making matrix will be attached to the podcast. A 53-year-old male presents to hospital with right upper quadrant pain, nausea, and vomiting. He reports that he had this pain previously and that it usually worsened after meals, but then always resolved by itself. This time, he says, over the past three to four days, the pain has persisted without any abatement and even worsened. On initial exam, he is febrile at 38.5 and reports having had some chills that onset yesterday morning and that he has experienced these intermittently since. His wife brought him to the hospital this morning accordingly. On exam... He is alert and oriented times 4, with mild yellowing to his sclera and perhaps a mild jaundice. CVS exam is unremarkable. REST exam is unremarkable, though he does notice his pain worsens when he takes a deep breath and he gets some stabbing right shoulder pain that is otherwise not present. Abdominal exam reveals a soft non-distended abdomen, but he has guarding on exam, particularly on palpation over the right upper quadrant. He endorses no bowel movement times 2 days, but has been eating less given his discomfort. He has normal urine output, though he is not on ins and outs. He has no peripheral edema. He has no integumentary abnormalities beyond the perhaps mild jaundice. The patient's blood cultures are drawn and pending, and diagnostic imaging is also pending. Past medical history is significant for hypertension. He's pre-diabetic with an HbA1c of 6.3 and GERD. For social history, the patient drinks alcohol socially on weekends and when he has friends over. None in the past two weeks, though. There's no substance use otherwise. He works as a mechanic at a dealership in Leduc, and there's no history of sick contacts. The patient's diet has been unchanged of late, and they have had no known contact with foodborne outbreaks or product recalls. For the patient's vitals, he's febrile at 38.5, but otherwise the rest are unremarkable. For labs, white blood cells are elevated at 18.3, neutrophil predominant. Hemoglobin is 143, platelets are 188. The lights are normal. Serum creatinine is 143 with a baseline in the 70s. Lactate is 1.8. ALP is up to 400 and Billy-T is 123. ALT and AST are 68 and 79 respectively.
0: So to summarize, we have a hemodynamically stable patient presenting with right upper quadrant abdominal pain worsened on palpation with fever, LFT abnormalities, AKI, and perhaps some mild jaundice.
1: So let's go through our top three differential diagnoses for a patient presenting with right upper quadrant pain, systemic inflammatory symptoms, and cholestasis. As usual for these cases, we have attached a clinical decision-making matrix to this podcast that can be downloaded. That said, for intra-abdominal infections, usually Emerge has already ordered imaging for us for patients localizing convincing symptoms. So often, we are fortunate to walk into a pre-established diagnosis confirmed via objective means
0: but going through our differential diagnosis anyways. The location of the pain and the cholestatic enzyme abnormalities point away from diverticular disease or appendicitis. The most common intra-abdominal infections that cause right upper quadrant pain and may affect liver enzymes include liver abscess, acute cholecystitis, and cholangitis. So liver abscess. Risk factors for this include diverticular disease, biliary disease, inflammatory bowel disease, or malignancy. Our patient doesn't seem to have any of these charted, but he describes previous right upper quadrant pain that worsened after meals and abates on its own, which sounds like he actually does have biliary disease that could predispose him. From a time course standpoint, he's really only been having symptoms over the past few days. Liver abscesses are usually more indolent, so often patients will report malaise, weakness, maybe chills, and tactile fevers for several weeks, so his timeline sounds like it's a bit off. That said, pain and discomfort are subjective, so it's always difficult to rely fully on a history to establish a timeline. He does have some concordant features with liver abscess, like infectious symptoms, localizing pain to the right upper quadrant, and elevated LFTs. But he has some really important discordant features as well. His jaundice and disproportionately elevated bilirubin would be surprising findings in hepatic abscess. And the timeline is a bit off, so overall, liver abscess doesn't totally fit.
1: Okay, so maybe one of our biliary diseases. Risk factors for acute cholecystitis and for cholangitis include recent dramatic weight changes and obesity, which don't fit with our patient. But our patient's history does give us a hint that he likely has pre-existing biliary disease. The timeline for acute cholecystitis or acute cholangitis is usually over several days. Our patient describes a few days of symptoms that have persisted and brought him to hospital, so his symptoms fit with a biliary disease. Now let's distinguish between cholecystitis and cholangitis. I would highly suggest pulling up a picture of the liver, gallbladder, and common bile duct for this because the visual makes it obvious why these biliary conditions present the way they do.
0: Right, if you look at the gallbladder, the cystic duct connects the gallbladder to the common bile duct. A stone in the cystic duct, known as cholelithiasis, doesn't obstruct the common bile duct. It only obstructs the head of the gallbladder and causes built-up pressure in the gallbladder. The common bile duct, on the other hand, connects the liver to the duodenum. A stone in the common bile duct, known as choletocholethiasis, causes dilation and impaired host defenses in the common bile duct, as well as impaired bile outflow. So
1: this explains why patients with cholecystitis usually don't have significant LFT elevations, because the common bile duct isn't obstructed, so the liver isn't impacted. While with cholangitis, the common bile duct is obstructed, and bile drainage is prevented, so we get hepatic damage and cholestasis, with associated jaundice. And since the liver is a highly vascular organ, we have a high risk of bacteremia, and these patients tend to be more unwell.
0: So in general, patients with cholangitis are sicker than those with cholecystitis, but it's worth commenting on the fact that patients with acute cholecystitis can be quite unwell also. For instance, you can have cholelithiasis, where the stone obstructing the cystic duct is very large and compresses the adjacent common bile duct. This produces obstruction of the common bile duct, and then you do see LFT abnormalities, and patients are frequently jaundiced as well. That's Merizzi syndrome. So based on the significant LFT abnormalities, and in particular the bilirubin, our patient here could have either cholangitis or Merizzi syndrome. But to be honest, he's sufficiently stable that a cholangitis is more likely, because patients with Merizzi syndrome are usually quite unwell. They frequently have such significant structural compromise that the adjacent vasculature is compressed, producing gangrenous cholecystitis with perforation. Or sometimes they've even fistulized.
1: Okay, so since he's stable but has clear hyperbilirubinemia, we would consider cholangitis our most likely diagnosis. But ultimately, we can tell this is a biliary disease.
0: If we are pretty confident in our diagnosis, like for this patient, we may send the patient straight to ERCP for decompression. In many situations, we would obtain an abdominal ultrasound for what it's worth first, despite its lower sensitivity and specificity for biliary disease as compared to just gallbladder disease. But when confident, we may choose to just send to ERCP. On the other hand, if we had a patient presenting with symptoms where we really weren't sure whether there was common bile duct involvement, we could obtain MRCP to establish whether there was common bile duct involvement. This would then dictate our surgical strategy and management. All that said, like already mentioned, by the time we are admitting these patients with suspected intraabdominal infection, often eMERGE will already have ordered imaging and established a diagnosis for us. So going off of that, let's say we've established our patient has cholangitis. What antibiotics would you order?
1: Well, We already said that for a community-onset infection, ceftriaxone would cover the usual gram-negative organisms. You may be wondering, where's the metronidazole? Technically, for cholangitis, we really don't need anaerobic coverage, as anaerobes don't tend to ascend the biliary tract as readily as gram-negative aerobes, so we can get away with covering just gram-negative aerobes. But if you said ceftriaxone and metronidazole, this is a reasonable option.
0: So next question, does this patient with cholangitis require source control? Unless the patient has
1: managed to pass the biliary stone himself from his common bile duct, in which case you'll start seeing the bilirubin come down on its own, he will likely require ERCP to remove the obstruction and permit bile flow.
0: Okay, so final question. How long would you treat this patient for? And when would you step down to oral therapy?
1: As long as ERCP is successful, with no ensuing complications, we can treat for a total of 4 to 7 days. Once the patient is improving clinically and able to tolerate and absorb oral medications, transitioning to oral antibiotics to complete the course is
0: possible. For most patients, this will be just after ERCP. So this concludes our podcast on intraabdominal infections. And just remember, for community onset intraabdominal infections, ceftriaxone and metronidazole plus source control are your friends.